following podcast is a production of the network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. Welcome to the Herd and Ten podcast. Here's your host, Jake Fratinsky. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Herd and Ten podcast. I'm your host, Jake Fratinsky. You can find me on Twitter at jfortinsky nfl. If you want daily Buffalo Bills content, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're constantly posting content surrounding the Buffalo Bills. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, hit those five stars. Give us that five-star rating. Now let's get right into this episode. This is going to be a little bit of a different episode because I'm not talking about any new news for the Buffalo Bills. I'm going to focus on the arguable biggest bust in the last, we'll call, decade for the Buffalo Bills. And before I mention this person's name, I want to start with a couple things. The Bills have had a lot of bad draft picks, basically since, we'll we'll call it since the drought began, and then of course now it's ended, but since 2000, the Bills have had plenty of terrible draft picks that have set the team back for years. There's a reason the team was in a drought for almost 20 years. It's because of terrible pick after terrible pick, bad GM, bad coach after bad coach. So yes, this player, in my opinion, is the biggest bust, the worst pick the Bills have made in that time period, in the 2000s era to we'll call it 2021 now. It's not the only issue the Bills have had. Having bad coaches matters too. And I just, I want to say this before because I think a lot of you will say, oh, well, he could have been better if the team was better around him. And you're right. It's not just about that player. Yes, that player must may have been a bust, but it doesn't mean the player couldn't have been a good NFL player. Part of the issue is the team and the organization that person is drafted to. So I'm not going to ignore that. I know that that's a key piece. But when we look at how bad that player was, how that player didn't meet expectations and set the team back for years to come, that to me is a big problem. And just the player's attitude, the way they performed, the way they led, some of the concerns before or when they got drafted, and, and where they got drafted, that's a big thing too, right? So without further ado, I believe the biggest bust, the, the worst pick the Bills have made, basically we'll call it in the last 20 years, is EJ Manuel. Now, he was drafted in the first round, 16th pick overall. And it should be noted he was the first quarterback taken in the 2013 draft. 
And at the time, most analysts thought it was a bad pick. There's a reason the first quarterback in that draft was taken at 16th. That's a problem. Usually, you see quarterbacks going in the top few picks. Now, this was a bad quarterback draft class. But Manuel had so many issues coming in. He had injuries. There was question marks whether he had the skill level, whether he had the brain power to read NFL defenses. So before the Bills took him, analysts did not feel that Manuel would be able to become a true starting franchise quarterback in the NFL. And they were right. Now, there's many times where they've been wrong. Look how many analysts thought that Tom Brady was a joke and that he'd be nothing. And now he, of course, a lot of you might not like that I say this, but he's the greatest quarterback to ever live. And, you know, yeah, obviously as a Bills fan, it's hard to say that, but that's the truth. Tom Brady is the best quarterback to ever live, to ever play in the NFL. And a lot of analysts didn't think he would be good. So just saying that analysts didn't think EJ Manuel would be good is not really enough of an argument. But why don't we take a look at what he did in his career? Let, let's first look at his statistics in the NFL. So he gets drafted 2013, starts 10 games, has a little under 2,000 yards passing, 11 touchdowns, 9 interceptions, 77.7 passer rating. I mean, not good stats. Fine. But it's his rookie season, so you want to give him a break? No problem. He had some decent games in that first season. Like, there were some things that were impressive. I mean, it should be noted, he did break some records for the Bills. He had the most completions by a rookie quarterback for the Bills. Now, the big issue with E.J. Manuel wasn't that he couldn't play. He could play, but not at the level that you would need to be able to to be a franchise quarterback. Also, the whole completion thing, I, I don't love that stat because, yes, he had lots of completions, but it doesn't really mean anything because the Bills haven't had many good rookie quarterbacks. That's number one. And number two... It's because he was doing dump-offs. He wasn't really moving the ball a lot. So, great. He had 180 completions. That's that's wonderful. But he only threw 11 touchdowns, and he threw 9 interceptions. Like, that's not very good. Okay, and in his second season, he started 4 games. 838 yards, 5 touchdowns, 3 interceptions, 80.3 passer rating. Then he goes on to the next season. He only starts 2 games, plays 7. He had a lot of injuries over his time with the Bills. 561 yards passing, three touchdowns, three interceptions, 78.5 passer rating. Then let's go on to his fourth season. Six games played, but only one game started. Barely played. 131 yards, zero touchdowns, zero interceptions, 58.3 passer rating. These statistics are awful. These are brutal. Okay, fine. His rookie season, it wasn't a disaster. But, I mean, he did nothing, really. Like, it's it's nonsense. He had the highest completion percentage by a rookie quarterback at 58.8. It was all dump-offs, though. He wasn't, he wasn't really moving the ball. 
So he played one season after the Bills with the Oakland Raiders. And after that, he was gone. No one even wanted him. And he wanted to stay in the league. But he had to retire because no one wanted him. Everyone thought he was garbage. He was a complete bust. I don't think anyone's going to argue that he wasn't a bust. The question is, is he the worst draft pick in the last 20 years for the Bills? I would argue that yes. They gave up a lot. You spent a first-round pick, an almost a top-10 pick, okay, 16th overall, the first quarterback drafted in that season, okay, in the 2013 NFL Draft. He's the first quarterback taken, and he's a complete bust. And it's not just that he wasn't good. It's that he was so injury-prone. The guy couldn't stay healthy. So even if he could have been decent, he couldn't stay healthy. I'm looking at his Wikipedia page here. The NFL.com analyst Bucky Brooks projected him as a top five quarterback. Fine. Top five quarterback, not top five pick. And he was taken first out of the five quarterbacks. Okay. He was compared to Josh Freeman. Josh Freeman did not have a good career. So getting compared to a player that that sucked is is not a good thing. Now, it's funny. It says here, he was faulted for somewhat inconsistent play at times during his college career. That's a big problem. If you have inconsistency in college, what's going to happen when you take another step and you start playing with men and not just boys? That's a big problem. The one thing E.J. Manuel had going for him was that he did look prototypical. Six foot four, two thirty-seven, so he's a big guy. He had some speed, so he can move. He had that mobility. And he he was a leader, at least in college. He had good leadership qualities. So that was all there. But it's not enough. You have to do more than that. You can't just be big. And fast. You got to be smart. You have to stay healthy. I mean, some of those things, you you know, you can't, you can't avoid that, okay? So you, you can't fully blame him for that. But it's still, it was a terrible pick. Whether they knew it was going to be a bad pick. Like, not all the stuff that determines it being a bad pick is based on the fact of things that you should have known. You couldn't have known that he was going to be plagued with injuries and barely be able to play. But even when you look at his stats in college, they weren't very good. That, that's my biggest issue. His statistics weren't that good in college. His final season was his best season, okay? His senior year in 2012. Throws for just under 3,400 yards. Okay, it's, it's okay. 68 for his percentage of completion, his completion percentage. Throws 23 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, 156 pass rating. I mean, in college, it's crazy. They all have crazy pass ratings. But he only threw 23 touchdowns and had 10 interceptions. That already is a concern. Like, these do not look good. These, these college stats don't look good. The year before that, 18 touchdowns, 8 interceptions. What I'm seeing when I look at his college stats, forget about everything else. Forget about the video. Let, let's not talk about that yet, how he looked on tape. Let's just start with the stats alone. 
Nothing from these stats jump off the page. How does that convince a team to take him as the first quarterback in a draft? What I think is desperation. The Bills sucked. They had nothing. They had to get a quarterback. And even if they knew Manuel wasn't going to be good or didn't really know what to do, they had to draft someone. So they took him. Now, obviously, it was a bust. He didn't work out. But there was nothing there. Like, there was, there was no reason that you needed to take him at that pick. There's no reason you needed to take him that high. I'm just not convinced that it made any sense. Why are you spending a pick on a quarterback that wasn't that good in college? That was middling in college. Like, he just wasn't very good. Look at those stats. Do any of those stats jump off the page? You tell me. In college, you throw 23 touchdowns. In your final year, the year before that, 18 touchdowns. And then you have eight interceptions and 10 interceptions, respectively. I mean, it's not great. His running stats aren't even amazing. 151 yards, four touchdowns. And then in his senior year, 310 yards, four touchdowns. I mean, those are okay. They're not mind-blowing. There's nothing super impressive about it. And then we look at his tape. You watch the guy. He, he's got that prototypical look, but he's inconsistent. He doesn't read the field well. You can see it. I mean, it's just... It's super frustrating that the Bills did this because the biggest thing to me is that you drafted a guy who set your franchise back. That's, that's, that's really what takes me to the next level is that drafting him set you back a few years. That's the biggest problem. It's not just about that the pick was bad because a lot of people, we, we posted this recently on Instagram and a lot of the response has been Aaron Mabin, Aaron Mabin, Aaron Mabin. Yeah, Aaron Mabin was a terrible pick, but he didn't set the team back nearly as far in my opinion as EJ Manuel did. And he didn't make the team look like as big of a joke. There, there is that too, that the media representation matters too, at least to me. Because taking EJ Manuel, it didn't just blow up in the face of the Bills organization and, and set them back many years, but it also made them look like a joke in front of the rest of the NFL. How can you take such a terrible player? How can it be such a bust? How can you take a guy so high and get basically nothing from him? Nothing. When Manuel played with the Bills, look at this. 2013, fourth place, 6 and 10. 2014, 9 and 7. 2015, 8 and 8. 2016, 7 and 9. We were never very good. Okay, a 1-9 and 7 season. I don't know if you remember, but Kyle Lorton came in and he was kind of a savior. It's unbelievable. Even Kyle Lorton did a better job than EJ Manuel. Orton was a decent veteran. He's making some decent money to play as a backup, but having to step in and he actually did something. He almost took the Bills to the playoffs. That tells me something, and that's something I want to talk about here. Because I mentioned earlier that a big piece in this is the team you come to, is the coaching you come to. That makes a huge difference to whether you can succeed or not. 
Now, E.J. Manuel entered a Bills team that was obviously not that good, right? They had high draft picks. They weren't very good. But you have a new coach in Doug Marone, who, in my opinion, is actually a decent coach. He's had some real success. Now, it was a lot later on with the Jacksonville Jaguars, but even with the Bills, he wasn't a bad coach. Wasn't a great coach, but he wasn't bad. When he left, a lot of Bills fans were not happy because he was actually turning the team around. Things were getting better. He wasn't an amazing coach by any means, not Sean McDermott, but he was a decent coach. So you didn't have Manuel entering into a team that had a terrible coaching staff. And if a guy like Kyle Orton, who was basically at the end of his career, couldn't move, was a statue in the pocket, didn't have a great arm, wasn't incredibly skilled. We also had Sammy Watkins. You had Fred Jackson. You actually had a very decent team around you. Okay? And the Bills go 9-7. and seven. How is it that EJ Manuel couldn't succeed in that organization at that time? That's something we need to look at because I don't think the Bills organization was such a disaster when Manuel was there. I actually think the team was in a decent position. Now, interestingly enough, because Manuel was such a bust, and that kind of spoiled Marone's time with the Bills, even though the Bills went 9-7 in 2014, even though the Bills actually had a real chance to make the playoffs with Kyle Lorton starting, it set the team back because the Manuel pick just dragged that franchise or that team down for a few years. So Marone's there. Manuel's a complete disaster. And even with Kyle Orton trying to save the day, which shows you how bad Manuel really was, because even Kyle Orton could almost get that team to the playoffs. I don't know if you all remember or not, but the Bills had a great defense in that 2014 season. That's part of the reason why they had a shot at the playoffs. So to say that Manuel could have been on a better organization, I think it's nonsense. I think he was drafted to a good organization at the time. Yes, the organization wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't a good team, but when Marone took over, he did turn it around and it was good enough to make the playoffs or almost make the playoffs, I should say. The point being is Manuel was drafted to a team that, yes, wasn't good, but was moving in the right direction. And when he entered, it spiraled out of control. And that's why Doug Marone left. And then you have the Ryan brothers come in, like Rex. I mean, complete disaster. Goes to Tyrod Taylor. You know, the, the Bills are, again, they're not a bad team, but they can't land a quarterback. Manuel, in my opinion, made things spiral out of control for... One, two, three, four, five, six years. You know, and, and I'll say this. Fine, McDermott comes in, starts to turn things around. But really, look what damage Manuel did. Years. When you make a bad pick on a quarterback like that, and you spend a really high draft pick on a quarterback, and you expect him to start basically day one, this is what happens. You waste years. That's how a drought goes from one, two, three years to 10, 15 years, 17 years. That's how you get to that number. 
It's bad drafting, and in particular, bad quarterback drafting. Every position matters. But you're going to hear me say this more times as I release more episodes. Without a quarterback, you have nothing. I don't care how many receivers you draft. I don't care how many cornerbacks you draft. I don't care how good your defense is. I don't care how good your running backs are. I don't care. If you don't have a good quarterback, forget it. If you make a pick on a quarterback and the quarterback isn't good, doesn't matter how good your team is, it's going to be so difficult to make the playoffs. It's not to say it's impossible, but it's highly unlikely. Look at the Bills when they broke the drought. They made the playoffs in 2017. They went 9-7. and seven. It was a miracle that they made it. And that was with quarterback play that was mediocre. Tyrod Taylor in that season was mediocre. But the Bills made it. But it was almost impossible for them to make it. And that was with a quarterback that wasn't even terrible. Just mediocre. So it shows you, if you don't have talent at the quarterback position, it doesn't matter how good your defense is. It doesn't matter how good your running game is. It doesn't matter how good your receivers are, in particular receivers. What can a receiver do if the quarterback stinks? What can Sammy Watkins do if he has EJ Manuel throwing him the ball? Do you want to know what he can do? Nothing. You need a quarterback. The quarterback has to be decent. Kyle Orton was sort of decent, I guess. He could throw the ball. And he was willing to throw it down the field, which is something EJ Manuel was not willing to do. Kind of a story that we've seen from a lot of Bills quarterbacks where they go from willing to push the ball down the field and then every season becoming more and more afraid, becoming more and more hesitant. That is not what you want in a quarterback. Look at Josh Allen. Every season that goes by, he doesn't just get better, but he's willing to throw the ball in riskier situations to an extent, right? He, he's taking away those boneheaded plays, but he's not shying away from pushing the ball down the field. He's not shying away from throwing it 20, 30, 40 yards down the field. That's what you need. EJ Manuel did not do that. And that is why, in my opinion, he was a terrible pick. And he's the biggest bust pick that the Bills have had in the last 20 years. He was a terrible pick. The analysts didn't like him at the time. He should not have been the first quarterback taken, although the draft class sucked. But the Bills should not have taken him. He wasn't good when he played. He was confused at times. Didn't have a lot of arm strength. Relied on his run too much. And he was injury prone. So even if he was decent, he was never on the field. And you can't fully blame the Bills for that. But it still makes it a bust. So that's how I'm going to end this part of the episode. And coming up, we have Lindsay Darcangelo from The Athletic. She's a sports writer. And she's also got an exciting new book coming out that's football related. So... We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk to Lindsay all about, of course, the bills and the upcoming draft and her book, which I'm telling you, you got to stick around for it because it's really an interesting book and it's coming out very soon. Thanks. It's the gift-giving season, and now there's a great card game that gives you action on any televised football game you watch. Just add your family, friends, and fun, and you have The Drive. Playthedrive.com. If you miss The Drive, you miss the party. Playthedrive.com. 
Hey Bills Mafia, this has been a crazy year with a lot of changes. Good changes like the Patriots not sitting at the top of the AFC East. But this year has certainly brought some challenges and has made it harder for us all to connect with our fellow sports fans. If you are a big sports fan like me, then you need to join this new sports fan community called Playing the Field. Playing the Field has developed a dating and community app centered around our sports fan lifestyle. It is a great sports-focused interface from their profile trading cards in your favorite team's colors down to their bubblegum in-app currency. The best part is that right now, while they're still in beta, it is 100% free to join. And you also get extra in-app bubblegum that you can trade in when their premium features get added in a few months. Go to playthefielddating.com and sign up now to buddy up, recruit teammates, or find your MVP. Also, be sure to check out their podcast, The Fan Experience, where they interview sports fans just like you and me and let them share their fan experiences. The Fan Experience is live Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Or you can catch the replays on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can't have a team without a mate. Go and find one now at playthefielddating.com. Welcome back to the Herd and Ten podcast. As we mentioned earlier, we have Lindsay D'Arcangelo on again. We're having her on to talk about a few things, one being the Buffalo Bills and another thing, which is her exciting new book called Hail Mary, which talks about the National Women's Football League. So, Lindsay, why don't we start out by just letting you tell our listeners where they can find you and then we can get right into some interesting topics. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, very active on Twitter. I'm at darkangel21. That's D-A-R-C-A-N-G-E-L 21. And uh, that's really, if you want to find me, that's where I'm at. (laughs) Awesome. So Lindsay, let's start with some Bills content here. The Bills have a lot of things they need to solve in the draft, which is strange to say. I didn't think I'd be saying that just because The Bills have kept almost all their, I think it's 21 out of 22 starters, something around those lines. Mm -hmm. They've kept almost everyone, but there's still a lot of holes that need to be filled. More importantly, it seems like there's opportunities to improve on existing players. When you look at the offensive line, there's definitely some room to improve. When you look in the cornerbacks position, there's some room to improve. But what I want to focus on today is the running back core, because They've added some depth there, but I still think that there's an opportunity to get better through the draft. Do you feel like the Bills are actually going to maybe even use their first round pick to take a running back? Or if not, are they at least going to look to land another running back? Like where, where are you at when it comes to Devin Singletary, Zach Moss, and of course, some new additions, Matt Burita, where are you at with those guys right now? Yeah, I mean, I like what Zach Moss brought to the offense last year. I I felt Singletary was maybe underutilized uh, in a way, but I I definitely feel like they can get better. I mean, you can always get better, right? So if there's someone through the draft that comes available, I don't see 
why taking them taking them wherever they land if it's with their first pick wouldn't be an option uh it, it just makes sense right i know that's uh a bit of a hot topic right now. Um, people often harken back to CJ Spiller, uh, you know, because he didn't pan out the way uh, a lot of people expected. And you don't really draft uh, running backs that high up uh, unless it's a, Sa a Saquon Barkley, you know, um, kind of guy. So um, I think it's just a, you know, Bean is always good at, at saying they go for what's what's there and what, what the best available is with each pick. So if there is a running back there at, at, with their first pick, I wouldn't be surprised if they took them. Uh, another area, I know you mentioned offensive line and cornerback, but I feel like they need a defensive uh, nose tackle in, a, in such a big way. Uh, they, need, they, need, they, need a, they need to prop up that defensive line. Um, that's another area that I feel like they need to improve on. Yeah, on our social media accounts, we've been getting a lot of comments like that, specifically about the defensive line. So I like that you bring that up because there is clearly an issue there because you have a lot of players that used to be good. You have Jerry Hughes, of course, who's still pretty good, but obviously not at the level that he used to be at. You have Mario Addison, who is nowhere near the player he once was. I mean, personally, when we signed him, I thought he was going to be a great addition. He just didn't pan out. I don't know if maybe he's lost a step. He's lost that hunger, whatever it may be. The Bills D-line is quite weak. Like they're loaded with a lot of big names, but most of those big names are well past their prime. So I guess that's going to lead to what you mentioned. The Bills need to fill some holes, but trusting Brandon Bean and seeing the way he's done it in the past, he's just going to take whoever's best. I don't necessarily think he's looking for specific positions. Like you said, whoever falls down there, if there's a running back and that running back is the best player left in the draft at that point, at pick 30 in the first round, the Bills will go and get that player. And same goes for round two, round three, round four, etc. There's also, of course, the opportunity to trade up or trade down. Now, I don't love the idea of trading up unless it's for a quarterback. I've said that in the past. I just don't feel that it's a great idea because a lot of times you're ending up with a player like you talked about, Saquon Barkley, of course. He's an amazing player. But really, when you look back now, it was probably not a good draft pick because a running back is just not going to change your team. It can improve an already good team but I don't think it can take a bad team or a middling team and make them a good or great team. I just don't think any of those positions in particular, the running back position can do that. But when you look at a bill squad, when they're so close, there's just a few more pieces they need to fill. I feel like those can make a difference. I want to touch on one more position and then I want to jump into really talking about your new book. So the last position here is the tight end position. The Bills brought in Jacob Hollister. Do you think Jacob Hollister is enough? Are the Bills done? Are they going to try to bring in another veteran? Are they going to draft a guy and develop him? You know, that's such a great question. And I feel like the tight end is another position where we're, we're, we're okay, right? You know, we're serviceable. Um, but it's not, it's not anything like Travis Kelsey-ish, you know what I mean? Like where it can change your whole offense. And it's, it's Stefan Diggs obviously needs more help um you know especially someone like that who can like a tight end to to undercut his routes and 
um, just break open the middle of, of, of the defense. But um, as far as, like you already mentioned it, the draft, in talking to Bean, and if you're familiar with Bean, you know, like you said, the, the, he, he always goes for best position available. So I think if there's, there's an option at tight end, again, um, would it surprise me if they took someone? No, not at all. If, if it's there and it, if it's available and it makes sense, that's what they're going to do. Um, I don't know at this point if they're going to bring in a veteran. I don't know really who's still available uh, right now. They may just go into training camp. They don't get anyone through the draft with what they have and kind of see what shakes out. Um, you know, Knox is not, he's not bad, but he's, he's made, you know, he's dropped, he's dropped enough balls where it's concerning. Um, I feel like he can get better though. Um, so yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they took someone. Would I like, would I, would I like them to, um, you know, I'm not so sure. I think that this is, I've thought about this. This is why I'm pausing because I put lots of, lots of thought in there into this. Uh, I think, I think Dawson Knox could be, I think he's got, he's got a higher ceiling, but it, it depends, you know, you know, what, what they think and what they want to bring in. But if, if someone is there available in the draft, I would totally be behind uh, grabbing a tight end. Yeah. The bills are sort of, and, and I guess really all of the fans were kind of waiting for Dawson Knox to become what we thought he would be after mm-hmm. His rookie season, we saw so much from him. We saw so much potential, but we saw the other side, which you talk about, the dropped passes. There was just too many of them. And the same kind of thing happened in the second year. He really didn't progress. Now he's entering his third year. We know tight ends take a long time to develop. And there's no question that there's a chemistry between Knox and Allen. The question is, is that chemistry enough where we don't need to bring in someone else. Maybe, like you said, we kind of just go into training camp with what we have and we see how the pieces fall and we just patch it together, I guess. I mean, I would have loved for us to get a big time tight end, but there isn't a lot left. That's the truth. Mm -hmm. There are still some guys hanging around and maybe we'll bring in a guy for training camp, but there's no one really super talented left. And the draft is another concern. Now they might go in the draft and do it, but I think I, I, I see what you mean as we're just going to go into training camp and try to figure it out. And hopefully someone wins that battle. Hopefully Knox takes a step forward or maybe Hollister in his college chemistry with Allen comes back and somehow he becomes a one, a tight end and Knox is the one B something along those lines. Now mm-hmm. I want to jump to something completely different, a different league, not the NFL but the National Women's Football League. So you have a book coming out called Hail Mary. And I am just, I'm so interested in reading it. I think it's such a fascinating story. I want you to talk about, and I don't know how much you can give to our listeners, how, how in depth you can go, but give us an idea of the story of it. The story is supposed to be the rise and fall of the league, but I would imagine there's some things that still to this day are important from that league in our history in sports now, particularly with the WNBA. Is there some connection there as well that you can talk to? Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of connection. And this is a sports league that existed from 1974 to 1988. Uh, and not many people know that, that it existed. And, and that some of the problems that they faced back then, you find uh, similar uh, 
similar issues with with the leagues of today. Uh, the WNBA is, is thriving, it's doing well, but um, there are women's football leagues, uh, the National Women's Soccer League, the National Women's Hockey League. You know, they they're having some of the similar issue, issues of, of growing and and financing and being treated equally amongst the media and um, being perceived differently because they're women who are athletic and aggressive and all of that, you know, and then you hearken back to the time period that this was in and, uh, you know, Title IX was just introduced. So there's, there's ties to that and the progress for women in sports. And, and really these women were, were, um, were activists even unwittingly um, and, and not, not really knowing that what they were doing was kind of changing the course of helping to change the course of, of women in sports. And so there's all of that. And it's also the story of the league and the players and um, their, their rivalries and, and just how they, they themselves furthered the legacy of, of women in sports. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. I, I actually was seeing something quite recently. I forget her name off the top of my head, but she is trying to bring back women's high school football. And it's quite an amazing story because she's come a long way. She's been playing with boys and, and now men, and she has learned how to play that way and to fit in. And But she also wants other girls and other women to have that opportunity to play as well. I don't know how familiar you are with that story or not, but it feels like this women's league had that and it, and it was stripped away. Do you think that there's a possibility that, that this could come back? Now, of course, I think the biggest challenge with football, the biggest hurdle is the violence. It's an incredibly violent sport. And the women's football league would be a violent sport as well because you don't want to take that away. Do you think that it's possible that we could see a league again? Or maybe it's some sort of an adjusted league, but maybe that you almost are getting students from high school developing into more semi-professional or professional football players? Yeah, well, the semi-professional leagues exist now. There's at least five of them. The problem is they're all trying to do their own thing. And um, it's, it's, it's obvious that what needs to happen is, is one, one, one league. They all need to come together and figure out how to have one league and then put all their energy into growing that. So, so there's an issue right, right there. But then there's also the fact that, you know, most women back then, in the seventies weren't introduced to football until they were adults, you know, so there's a learning curve. You have men who start in peewee and go all the way up. And so with women, there's, there's that huge learning curve. Uh, the, the thought is to get women exposed to football at a younger age. Well, how can you do that? In youth football, it's a little different, you know, women and, and or girls and boys are pretty much built the same and um, have a lot of the same, you know, physical attributes, whatnot. But once you start getting into the middle school, high school, college level, I mean, that all goes away. So what's the answer? Um, flag football, that's, that's becoming the, the answer. Uh, high schools around the country are introducing flag football. It's, it's becoming a college sport. It's obviously, like you said, a lot safer. Um, you mentioned the, the dangers of, of tackle football. Um, so that takes it right out of there, right? So you can still introduce the game and get girls familiar with the game and exposed to the game all the way on up through high school and college. 
to that level. And then they can go on to do other things. If they want to go and play in some of these semi-pro leagues, they can. If they want to get into coaching, they can. If they want to, you know, pursue scouting, like all of those things, all of those inroads that have already existed for men for all these years are now available, can now be available for women. So that's, that's some of the things that, that are happening and that, that are exciting. And then it didn't exist for women back in the seventies when they, when they started this league. I love that you bring up coaching now, before I get into that, I just want to mention the girl is Samantha Gordon. That's the name. I just took mm -hmm. a look online, but basically the coaching is an interesting one because you talk about it, if girls grow up playing football. Maybe, yeah, they go play semi-pro or they go do something else. It doesn't have to be in football. It doesn't even have to be in sports. But what this would open up, girls playing at a younger age and really understanding and developing the knowledge that you need to coach would mean that there'll be more women in coaching positions because we're, we're seeing some of that, but it's still so far away from where it really should be. There's no reason that, that women and men, that there should be any difference in coaching. There's no physical difference. There's nothing like that. It's strictly a, a mind game. And so I feel like when you talk about this, really developing the girls at a younger age, getting them involved in the sport will lead to them being involved in coaching more. And it could be in the college level or like you talk about semi-pro level. It could also be at the National Football League level. There's no reason that there can't be more women involved in the NFL, not just referees, not just assistant coaches, but when you start getting into coordinators, head coaches, there's no reason that they can't if they've grown up playing football their whole life. So I think that's really where it's going to come from. It's going to come from that passion and love to play the game. And that's going to lead to the passion and love for coaching the game. So I think that it's, it's really interesting. And that's, that's why I brought you on. I really want people to know about this league in the past because it's so relevant at this time right now, especially when there's such a push to get women more involved in football and in particular in the NFL. And this is how it's going to begin. It's going to begin by looking at the past, seeing how we can fix that, and now coming up with solutions to make the future better and make it more equal. So I appreciate you coming on. I think it's great to talk about this. I, I hope we'll have you on again, maybe when the book launches. I think it's something that people really need to be more passionate about because that's how we're going to get more women involved. Yeah, and just to, just to jump on what you were just talking about with women and coaching, obviously it's, it's, it's getting better and you can see more and more women are getting involved in different levels of coaching and scouting and all of that. And part of that is because the NFL started a, a women's careers in football forum about five years ago, and they do it every, every year around the combine, usually in February, just before the combines. I believe last year they did it with the combine, but uh, they invite like 50 women around there who they know either have high school coaching experience or played in, in one of these women's leagues and they bring them in. And they have them meet with different coaches around the league, different general managers, different different players, you know, in in the NFL. And then they they get offered internships, and that's how you you kind of have some of these inroads being built. I'm actually doing a story on Kelly Brownson, the, the the chief of staff for the Cleveland Browns now, um, just about her road to the NFL and how she got involved. She also played, so she has that player experience. And um, you know, she's worked for a couple different organizations, the Jets and the Bills, and uh, now she's with the Browns. So um, you're seeing it happen more, and it and it's 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 awesome to see because it, it's it's sort of growing on its own. 
you know, like I mentioned before, there's no pipeline for women really to get into football in, in these positions. And the NFL took it upon themselves to create that. So that's kudos to them. But uh, it still needs to, to get bigger and, and grow more. You know, there needs to be more opportunities at the college level so that women can jump from that to the pros like, like men do and, and go from there. Yeah, wow. I actually didn't even know that. I didn't know that the NFL had created that type of system to help promote women, essentially, and, and allow them the same opportunity. So that's, that's pretty amazing. So yeah, look, that's progress, right? The NFL is trying. Now, as we know, these large organizations, they move slowly, but at least we're seeing some progress. We're seeing some steps in the right direction. So Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, and you know, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime to talk bills, to talk this book, whatever you want. <laughs>